Cool. Well, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at H2O. Uh, I'm glad to be able to teach this Sunday. If you've been around for a little while, you might have noticed that the amount of times that I've been teaching on Sundays have started to taper off over the course of this year and especially this semester. Uh, that decision was really a practical one for me just as we get closer and closer to uh, moving to Buffalo and launching a new H2O church there, time has just been tied up elsewhere. Uh, and so while I do enjoy teaching, just kind of hasn't been where I've needed to spend my time as much this semester. And so uh, you may see me up here another time or two this semester, and then uh, that'll kind of be it for me as we prepare to embark on a brand new college-focused church plant in Buffalo, New York. And so um, in regards to that, I would love for, for many of you to really just consider joining us for spring break in Buffalo. Uh, Daniel was talking about that some, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really think that this trip in March has the potential to really be a springboard for us uh, as we are starting to launch a new church plant, just getting our name out there, meeting students on campus, meeting students that are lost, meeting students that uh, uh, maybe already are believers and maybe are just looking for a church, um, uh, learning about the campus, learning about the culture, uh, doing evangelism on campus and sharing Christ with people. There are just so many ways that I really think that this trip is going to be instrumental for us. So I would love for you to consider joining us uh, this spring break. So um, th there's, there's a ton there. Uh, sign up really as soon as you can. We really need to get a head count. So honestly, if you could sign up by next Sunday, that would be ideal. Uh, it costs about $150, and that includes housing and transportation and some of the food for the week and stuff like that. So uh, all the info is on our website. Seriously, would love for you to come. Um, all right, so if you've been with us at all this year, you know that we're in the book of Romans. Uh, this semester is when we're going to be wrapping that up uh, towards the end of the semester. The first 11 chapters, uh, Paul gives us this long-form, just deep explanation of the gospel, really the ins and outs of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. Really just trying to make it so abundantly clear that we could never hope to earn our right standing with God, that, that we were dead in our sin and that nothing we could do could ever earn God's favor or earn our salvation. But that Christ came, he lived this perfect life for us, and if we confess with our mouths that he is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we would be saved. That, that, that his righteousness would be given to us, be imputed to us, and that we could return to a right relationship with God. And so Paul goes through great depths to really just explain the ins and outs and the, all of the facets of that message from really just every possible angle. And then, beginning in chapter 12, he begins to share with us what we should do with that, right? how we should respond to the gospel message. He leads by saying this in Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And this verse, I really think, is the foundation for a lot of what's left in the book of Romans. Right? That if we're saved, if we've made Jesus the king of our lives, we ought to offer our lives as a sacrifice to him. And then Paul builds on this by just sharing all kinds of practical ways that we should be doing this. That through, again, most of the rest of what we have left in Romans. And the summary, the short uh, summary of, of what that means is to love God and love others, right? That's the general response. If you've been around a Bible-believing church for any amount of time, that probably doesn't shock you, right? You've probably heard that before. But what might be a surprise is how we love God and others, right? And so uh, sometimes I think 
d- depending on your background and, and where you're at in this faith journey, we hear that. We hear the idea of loving God and loving others, and we really think about a kind of infatuation. Right? I think nicely about God. You know, I think positively about God. We think of him in a nice manner. Uh, maybe we have good feelings towards him, but that's not really what's going on here when, when it comes to really loving God and loving others. Our lives are a sacrifice to God if we are in Christ. And how we see that practically play out is that we love others and love God with the same kind of love that Christ has for us, right? That dying to ourself kind of love, okay? The kind of love that's sacrificial. And so as we continue in Romans 12 today, that's what we're going to be seeing. Paul gives us these practical commands, really, really practical commands as to the way to love the way that Christ has loved us. And and this passage in particular that we're going to go over is just loaded with with all kinds of short but sweet commands as to how we can practically live this out. And and it's it's not exhaustive. It's not like an exhaustive list of like, oh, if you just nail these, you're going to be good to go. But there is a lot here that I think we can really uh, consider and learn from. And so uh, I'm going to pray, but then we're going to read through this passage, honestly, just really slowly so that we can stew on it a little bit. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. God, um, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much for your word. And uh, just that we get to gather together to learn from it. God, we thank you for, for uh, you know, even the book of Romans and just how you inspired uh, this book to be written so that we might learn more and more about you. God, we want you to speak here. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak in a way that I can't, um, that you would speak to people's hearts way beyond the words that I say. And uh, we love you so much, God. We thank you for loving us first, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. It says this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be hopeful in joy patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so there's a lot in there, right? And, and, and frankly, you could probably preach a sermon on each of those verses if you wanted to, right? There's just a lot going on, really dense with practical commands. So might be worth combing through on your own time a little bit of, of God, what would you teach me through this? 
in general, I hope that you see that Paul's really giving instruction on how to live in light of the gospel and how almost all of these are really ways that we can love others with the same kind of love that Christ has for us. The, the funny thing, honestly, I think about all of this is that those commands, I really don't think are that complicated, right? They're pretty simple, uh, but not necessarily easy, right? Not complicated, but potentially difficult to live out. And so rather than trying to teach on every single command in here today, uh, uh, we might be here forever if I did that, or I think it would just be a little scattered. Um, I'm just going to own in on a few of these things today. So the first one is verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So why, why does Paul say this? Right, why is this a way that we can live our lives as a sacrifice to God? Right, what's going on here? Well, the, the first thing is this. This is just a foundational idea that I really want to make sure that we touch on before we move on. Our God is holy and just. Right? One of the foundational truths of our faith is that there is good and evil in the world. Right? God designed us as moral beings and that God being perfect and holy, he loves what is good and he hates what is evil. Okay? These are foundational truths we cling to. And, and these truths are essential to understanding the gospel message. That, that as humans, we disobey God. We did not cling to what is good. Right? We ran from God. We, we, we did what was right in our own eyes. We sinned against a holy and just God. But now, if we are in Christ, if we have placed our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we will strive to love what is good and to hate what is evil. If we're in Christ, we should hate the sin and the evil that really just drove a wedge between us and God. The things that keep us from him. And we should love the things that God loves. The sin and the evil of the world, th these are things that God hates. And honestly, they're also things that are just not good for us. And we weren't designed to live in those spaces. And so um, that, that's kind of the foundational thought. And then the other thought is our love for others is not sincere if we don't hate what is evil and love what is good. So, so Paul begins by saying, you know, uh, love sincerely, right? He said, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And, and um, really, the, the reality is, if everything that I just said, if we believe all of that is true, and, and that we're designed for a relationship with God, but that sin drives us away from him, should we not hate the things that keep us far from God? I think we should. And more specifically, how can we love other people well if, if, if we don't hate the sin in our lives that causes them harm? And, and this is the difficult one, hate the sin in their lives that causes them harm. Right? Hate the sin in our lives that causes them harm, but also hate the sin in their lives that causes them harm. If, if a brother or sister in Christ is is getting drunk or, or, or going out and partying, um, maybe struggling with alcoholism. And, and I use this example because that's going to be common in this culture. Um, if they're doing that and I watch them participate in this, and I, I know it's going to cause spiritual death and decay, and I know it's going to, to drive them away from the God of the universe, do I have sincere love for them if I don't care? Right? Do I have a sincere love for them if I don't say anything about that? 
or how about the brother or sister that's struggling with sexual sin? Right? Again, another just common one. I'm not trying to really own in on these because they're more important, but because they're common in our culture. If I know that that's going on and don't seem to care or want to help them, is that sincere love? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And so this is what Paul's saying. He's reminding us that if we want to walk this walk, if we want to pursue Jesus and let our lives be a living sacrifice for him, like he says in verse 1, we must hate what is evil in order to love God well and in order to love others well. Right? It's not just hating what is evil in others either. I don't really want to zero in on, on just that. Is it going to glorify God to let sin remain in my life? No, it's not. And is it going to be loving or caring to others if I let sin remain in my life? No. Like, there's, there's, of course, the kind of sin that is directly harmful to other people, right? If I sin against somebody, obviously going to cause harm to them. But I, but I think in addition to that, it's going to hinder my relationship with God. And I know that when I'm closer to God, I love other people better. Can love be sincere if I don't hate what is evil and love what is good. So what do we do with this? Here's, here's what I'm not going to do with this. <laughs> okay? As a follower of Jesus, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to try to coach someone who, who does not love God into living a more moral life. Right, like, I don't know that it's going to do a lot of good for someone that does not know Christ for me to really try and teach them how to live a moral life if they don't love Christ. Right, what they need is Jesus. Like, cleaning up their act is not going to help them know Christ more. Okay, and so I, I hope you see the difference here. I'm, I, I don't want to teach us to judge our lost friends and, and, and try and get them to clean their act up when what they need is a relationship with Christ, right? So it's not up for me to judge the sin in the life of somebody that doesn't know Jesus. What they need, need above all else is a relationship with Christ, not to clean up their act. And I really think that if, if that's the takeaway, uh, what will subtly teach others is that they need to clean up their act before they have a relationship with God. Right? We'll, we'll teach them that, that what God wants for, from them is a moral life, and what God wants really is their heart. Right? And, and he wants their life, their repentance. He wants their faith. So that's what I'm not going to do. However, as a believer, it is my duty to care about other people that do know Jesus. And, and in that regard, I must hate what's evil in myself and cling to what is good and loving. If I really want to love others well, I need to hate what is evil in myself, but also I have to hate what is evil in my brother and sister and love what is good in them as well. Right? That they might know Christ more and more and more. And that's hard. Okay? May or may not be obvious to you, but following Jesus often has a cost. Right? And and having that kind of conversation with somebody, even if, it's, even if it's born out of love, like genuine love and care for that person, it has the potential to not be received well, right? It has the potential to cause division in your friendship or relationship with that person, 
you know, a, a long time ago, um, a long time ago, over five years ago, when, uh, when, when I was a bachelor, uh, I was living down the street uh, on a house on Probasco that some men in our church still live at. And, uh, and one of my roommates uh, was a brand new Christian, just had started to follow Jesus, was really trying to make him king over his life. And so um, it had been a few months since he had begun that journey, and he started to date a girl. And uh, this girl did not love Jesus, okay? That they were not a follower of Christ. Uh, God was not their priority, okay? And so what I did was I sat down with him, and, and I told him that if he wants to follow Jesus, I really think he should not be dating somebody that does not also want to follow Jesus, right? Uh, I, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but I really just kind of understood that if, if he's trying to make Jesus king over his life, he's going this way, and if he's dating somebody with the intention of trying to figure out if he should marry him, marry them, uh, for the rest of his life, they're going this way. And so I was like, I'm not, again, I'm no scientist, I'm not a genius, but it seems pretty clear to me that those paths were incompatible. And so I told him that. I sat him down and told him that. I said, hey, I really don't think this relationship is good for you. And, and you know what? He was really angry with me. Uh, and he forgave me eventually, but at the time he was really angry. He didn't like being told uh, not to do this thing that he wanted to do, right? And I was clear, it's like, I'm sure she's nice. Uh, I'm sure, you know, fun to be around or whatever, but I, I just don't think this is what's best for you. And years later, uh, he sat me down and told me that he was really grateful that I had that conversation with him. Um, and uh, now he's happily married to someone else that loves Jesus, and, and they're seeking his kingdom together. But you know, I didn't know how he was going to respond. And if we love Jesus, and if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, it, it really shouldn't matter, right, how they respond. And so, to love sincerely, we have to hate what is evil and love what is good. And I, I think implicit in this, right, as, as we hate what is evil in others and, and, and really just try to turn them towards Christ, uh, we see this truth. Um, we're, we're just going to go over a few truths today that, that I think um, are important marks of a follower of Jesus. If I want to follow Jesus, Jesus must be king over my dignity. He must be king over my dignity. And, and here's what I mean by that. I must be willing to follow Jesus at any cost. And the cost, most often, for, for doing this type of thing, for loving people boldly and, and with courage, at least in our culture, is the cost of your dignity. Right? People may not respond well to you. They may not like what you have to say. They might view you differently. They might respect you less. And yet, Jesus must be king over that if we want to follow him. And so that's the first thing. If we want to hate what is evil and cling to what is good, that's going to result in us letting Jesus be king over our dignity. All right, so next verse that we, we want to uh, kind of own in on is verse 11. Um, it says this. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. 
uh, I thought this was really interesting when I first read it this week and was really trying to wrap my head around what's being said here. So what's zeal? What's spiritual fervor? I'm sure we all have some idea about what that means. Um, But Paul is essentially telling us to care deeply about what God cares about. Zeal. Uh, the, the definition of zeal that you can just generally find in English is great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Um, and, and what's especially interesting to me, the word fervor here in the Greek is typically used to describe boiling water. Uh, and so the metaphor here is to care so much for the things that God cares about that it kind of boils over, right? That, that you are overwhelmed with a kind of fervor and zeal for God that it really spills over into your life, into your words, into how you act, into how you think. And this word's only used like four times in the Bible. Now, I find this to be really, really interesting because a piece of wisdom that I have picked up over the years, I would say, uh, is that I should follow Jesus regardless of my level of enthusiasm on the matter. Right? Regardless of if I feel as though I'm lacking in zeal, I should probably follow Jesus anyway because he's the truth. Right? He's, he's where the life is. Right? There's no other place where I can go to find life, to find life abundant. And so uh, I still think that that's true, right? that like, regardless of how I feel, probably should be pursuing Christ. However, what Paul seems to be indicating here is that we, we do have some kind of responsibility in keeping a, a zeal, a kind of zeal and spiritual fervor for the Lord, right? That, that we should work at having a kind of deep care and enthusiasm about the things that God cares about. And I think that's interesting because my experience would tell me that in a lot of ways, spiritual fervor is not something that I can control, right? I, I mean, I've had seasons of life where I've been way more zealous for Jesus than I have ever been. Right? I can think of several seasons, especially where Jesus was just all I could think about, right? And, and this isn't hyperbole. Like, I would wake up thinking about Jesus. I'd go to bed thinking about Jesus. Every person that I would talk to, I really felt like was an, like an opportunity to talk to somebody new about this God that I knew. And then I've had seasons of life where I really had to fight to follow Christ, Right, and extend his kingdom. Seasons where I, I've just dealt with all kinds of difficulty from my past and my history that may make it hard to engage. Seasons where I've just genuinely struggled to care about the things that God cares about. And, and while I suspect that there are certainly times uh, where this kind of spiritual fervor or zeal is at least a little bit out of our control, Paul seems to indicate that we bear some amount of responsibility to maintain that to maintain a kind of zeal and fervor. So um, what what do we do with this? Uh, Well, there's two premises here. First, the the first premise is zeal is valuable, right? And and somehow important to glorifying God or else Paul wouldn't be trying to tell us, hey, you should work at maintaining this. So something about that is good, right? Having a kind of zeal and a kind of spiritual fervor for the Lord. But the second premise is that we actually do have some amount of control over whether or not we have it. So while this is still a little bit confounding to me, uh, here here are some of my own personal takeaways. I have to make every effort to live like the gospel is true. I have to make every effort to live like the gospel is true. 
I have to make every effort to care about the things that God cares about. Right? So this is just some quick thoughts, but, but, but uh, really, and this is the one that kind of struck me the most, um, by God's grace, I, I ought to work hard to just take care of my soul uh, so that I, like, emotionally love the things that God loves and, and, and love them with a deep passion and zeal to the best of my ability. Right? By God's grace, I just ought to work hard at that. My experience has taught me that this means that I should prioritize personal time with God and that I should prioritize time with other people that love him. Right? I, I want to fill my mind with the word of God, I, knowing that it has power, knowing that uh, the more I do that, the more zeal I tend to have. Right? The more I fill my mind with the, the words of God, that tends to impact uh, the kind of fervor that I have for him. Right? I want to not only work hard at initiating spiritual conversations with people that love Christ, but also really just intentionally put myself around others that I know love him and hopes that it rubs off on me. I want to identify the practices and habits in my life that distract me enough that I lack spiritual fervor or zeal for God. Right? There's so many ways that, that we, can, we can really work hard at this. And uh, something that just struck me as I was preparing is that we have a surprising amount of, uh, of uh, ability to affect um, our zeal for God. Right? And, and in reading this, it just began to strike me that the seasons of life where I really lacked zeal, where I really lacked spiritual fervor, um, have rarely felt that I had no control over it. It's rarely felt like, wow, that just kind of happened to me and I had no ability to change that whatsoever. By God's grace, I had to work hard at taking care of my soul. And, and also, by God's grace, I had to work hard at practically caring about the things that God cares about. Right? This means, regardless of how I feel, I ought to care about the things that God cares about in the way that I live. Um, have you guys ever heard the phrase, fake it till you make it? Okay, actually, I kind of hate that phrase. But I, was <laughs> um, I, I kind of hate that phrase because it, it genuinely, it doesn't apply to everything. Right? Like, uh, I don't know, something about that kind of rubs me the wrong way because I, I think people can misapply that sort of uh, uh, teaching or, or advice, right? And, and the first thing I think about is that there are all kinds of people um, that are, they, they act like Christians, right? Um, that have never really submitted their lives to Christ. So for those people, I don't know that the advice of fake it till you make it is going to help them know Jesus, right? Like there, there's an aspect of you need to submit, you need to have genuine faith in Jesus and, and that will start to change you from the inside out. Faking it till you make it, not applicable to that type of person, right? However, there are some things that I think this kind of advice uh, can apply to and I think it applies here. Like if you're in Christ, you're not always going to feel like doing the things that the word of God teaches us. Uh, and I don't think the solution is to wait until you feel like it, okay? Uh, sometimes I find that doing the things I don't want to, that I, I just know are good for my walk with Christ, um, it helps develop a kind of zeal and spiritual fervor in me. Right? It helps me enjoy and, and love to follow Christ in these ways. 
right? I don't always feel like spending time in the Word, but what I find is that as I do it more and more, it develops a zeal in me to continue to do those things. I don't always feel like seeking out lost people to share Christ with until I start to have these conversations, and then the Spirit reminds me why I ever cared. It develops that kind of fervor in me to keep going. So uh, fake it till you make it, sometimes. Um, you know, by grace, by God's grace, we ought to just work hard to practically care about the things that God cares about. And in this way, I really feel like the, the kind of second major thought there is if we really want to follow Jesus, he can't just be the king over my dignity, right? He, he must also be the king over my desires, Okay must be king over my desires, that we must submit our desires to him. We must learn to care about the things that he cares about and really bend our lives around those things, right? Really work at caring for those things the same way God does. All right, so the last kind of main point here, uh, and this is uh, like five different verses that I think have a similar foundational idea, so I'm just going to read some of them and then we're going to discuss it. Um, Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Verses 19 19 through 21, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay. Um, You know, this last section here, uh, the one about burning coals, when when I was in college, I was an RA um, my senior year in Dabney. uh, And I, I just did that because I felt like it was a great way to meet students that were far from God. I just remembered when I was a freshman how far from the Lord I was and um, really even just how lonely I was. So I I moved in there to try and meet people and um, to to really just try and minister to others. And this guy from across the hall uh, and I became pretty close and I started to invest in him and, um, and, you know, I ended up being in his wedding and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But when I first met him, he told me his favorite verse was the one in Romans about heaping burning coals on people's heads. Um, and I found that to be very strange, <laughs> right? Uh, like, yikes, the verse you like the most is the one that says, loving your enemy will be received as though they have burning coals on your head. It, it just kind of felt like if that was your favorite part, you know, maybe you missed the point <laughs> of, of what's being said here. Um, and, and maybe I misunderstood the verse a little bit at that point in time as well. But, but something I just kind of found in digging into this uh, when I was looking up uh, this stuff online was the description of heaping burning coals is a reference to Proverbs 25. In Egypt, there had been a custom to carry a pan of burning coals on one's head as a sign of repentance. Kindness and forgiveness to those who abuse us ideally will make them ashamed of themselves and hopefully bring them to repent. So what I thought then was, oh, he likes it because he feels like if he's kind to people that are rude to him, uh, it'll make them kind of feel bad, like I'm going to inflict pain on them or something like that by just killing them with kindness, but like in the bad way. Um, But really what's going on here is more of the the kindness that leads people to repentance, kindness that leads people to uh, uh, turn away and and really love God more. And so 
why does Paul say all this? Okay, not just this last section, but the other two verses that we talked about. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Right? Do not take vengeance. The last section is just kind of, do not take vengeance. Like, love your enemies that they might repent, you know, and turn to Christ. All of these um, are, are, I think, different practical ways to ac- accomplish a deeply similar goal. And, and that is this. It's our duty to, to love God and others the way that Christ has loved us. And this involves loving people in a way that's sacrificial uh, and in a way that is humble. In a way that's sacrificial, like honoring others above yourself, like that's going to involve sacrifice, giving them time so that you can be devoted to one another, like it says here in this passage. Working hard at, at living at peace with others, that involves some amount of sacrifice. And then humbly, I I think it just takes humility to swallow your pride and live at peace with people to the best of your ability. And to not treat your enemies the way that they treat you. And so here are just uh, a a few things that I have learned that I think will help you really live this out. Um, The first thing is this. Learn to be at peace with all people and to leave your excuses for dissension at the door. I find that when there's something between people, it can be easy to let it remain because it feels like it's more somebody else's fault than it is ours, right? So we don't try to be at peace with them. Um, Sometimes, even if it's primarily our fault, uh, we are so afraid of confrontation that we won't go out of our way to apologize and restore a relationship. But in any case, I've just found it to to be fruitful to really leave our excuses, whatever they are, for not being at peace with somebody at the door and to really pursue reconciliation. Something I found to be fruitful uh, as we go into these situations where I'm maybe not at peace with somebody is to go into them with a really unassuming heart. Right? I don't know what that person is dealing with. Uh, I don't know what their intentions were, if they wronged me. Right? They might, I, maybe I feel like they wronged me, Maybe I misunderstood the situation. I don't know their intentions. Um, And there's a possibility that I was the one in the wrong in a situation where I am not at peace with somebody. And so going into them in a very unassuming uh, manner. My wife, Lindsay, really likes to counsel people that in places of conflict resolution, they use the language of, when you did this, it made me feel this, right? When you did this, it made me feel unloved, which is subtle but different than when you did this, it was unloving, (laughs) right? One of those is unassuming as to a person's heart and motive, and the other uh, really assumes that they knew what they were doing uh, when they hurt you. The Word of God says that we're responsible to the best of our ability to be at peace with everyone. So uh, I think we, we would do well to really leave our excuses at the door, to really Uh, uh, kill our pride and our excuses and to love each other well by doing the hard work of conflict resolution. The second thing is this. No more yeah buts in these difficult conversations. Um, When I was at LT as a student in 2011, uh, a while ago, I I did a lot of conflict resolution um, because I was young. 
And I, I, I did a lot of it with some of my very best friends at the time. And, and one of them gave me some really helpful, but maybe hard to swallow counsel that when he approached me about my sin, I was very good at the yeah, but. <laughs> and, and what he meant by that was, you know, when he would approach me, hey, Kyle, what you did here was wrong. I was very good at, yeah, but this other person did this thing, you know, or, yeah, but, you know, I, I didn't mean it, or, or yeah, but you, you just don't understand why I did this or that, and in this, I think I just started to learn that maybe it's good to just own, <laughs> you know, those things, and, and really just uh, uh, not have a kind of um, pushback on, on, on people as they are bringing things to me, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's good to, to just learn to be a brother, a better brother or sister in Christ by just owning the things that we do wrong, um, and and, and uh, apologizing where necessary instead of doing the yeah but uh, type of thing. So, uh, the next thing is speak well of others always. Speak well of others always. Uh, this is something I work really hard at, but uh, I think it's so easy to disguise our gossip and slander as seeking counsel from other friends. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll complain to our closer friends about ways that other people have wronged us. Uh, and often, if we're not careful, we share those details in a way that really does not honor the person that we're talking about. Um, I think we're applicable. Maybe it would be good to leave another person's name out of those kind of conversations. And where it's not applicable, to make sure that we we paint them in a positive light, right? I don't want the people I'm seeking counsel from to think about my brother or sister in Christ in a negative way. I work really hard at that. Um, I, I'm not the best at it, but I do work hard at it because I, I do think sometimes seeking counsel in difficult situations, conflict resolution situations is important and valuable, but you know, it's really important to paint the person I'm talking about in a positive light. Right? I don't want others to think poorly about that person, so, and I think that that's a really good way to love others in Christ and keep peace with other people. And then the last thing is this, we should love others regardless of how they acted toward us. Now, the funny thing about this is this may be the most obvious to us, right? Jesus says all kinds of things like this, right? You know, turn the other cheek. Uh, uh, he says things like that and all kinds of other things throughout the Gospels about how we should love our enemies, you know, pray for those who persecute us, things like that. But it's also the easiest to neglect. When someone wrongs us, it's easy to feel like they don't deserve our best. Right? They don't deserve our love or our kindness. And yet, what we see throughout the Scriptures is that that is exactly how Christ has acted towards us. Right, while we were enemies of Christ, he loved us anyway. Right, he died for us so that we could be restored to a right relationship with God. And this is the crux of everything that Paul is saying in this section. He, he lays out the full gospel from Romans 1 through 11 and, and shows us just how undeserving we are of God's love. He really tries to attack that from, like, every possible angle. Like, no, you really are undeserving, right? You really don't deserve the kind of love that God gives us. There's nothing we could do to earn it. And yet, despite that, 
God chose to send Jesus to live this perfect life and die for us so that we could be restored to a relationship with God from now through all eternity. The only response to this can be to make Jesus king over our lives and to love him in return. And if we make Jesus king over everything in our life, what we'll find is that we'll make him king over things like our dignity, uh, things like our desires, and also things like our relationships, which is kind of what we're talking about now. Jesus must be king over our relationships. And he must be king over our resources as well, although we, we don't have time to talk about that specifically today. We do this with joy. Right? We, we make Jesus king because he loved us first. Right? He loved us first, and we seek to mimic and imitate that love for him and for the people that he cares about. So this is the scripture I want to leave with you. 1 John 4, starting in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Let's pray. God, um, you're good to us. And, and we thank you for your scripture. We thank you that we can learn from you in this way, God, that we can learn to love you better, learn to seek you better, learn to really make you king over our lives. And God, I just ask that you would teach us how to do that. God, that you would really pinpoint the areas of our lives that we have neglected to make you king over. God, maybe it's a king over our desires. God, help us to really bend our desires to be just like yours. Maybe it's king over our dignity. God, help us to not care about that and not care about our pride and our dignity as we seek to really honor you and love you to the best of our ability. God, maybe it's our relationships. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to make you king over every relationship we have. King over the relationships with people that we love and, and, and uh, already have a relationship with, people that are our family and friends people that love you, people that don't love you, God, may you be king over every relationship we have and God, king over our resources as well, our time, our, our talents, our treasures. Lord, I just pray that you would be king over that and, and God, I just pray that you'd help us to do that. We love you, God. We thank you for loving us first and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.